Welcome to Reclaiming the Faith with Phil Baker, a podcast with a mission to reveal what the earliest Christians believed about the core issues facing us today. You can find links to all of Phil's resources at philsbaker.com. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen today and take a moment to share this podcast with your friends. Now, here's Phil. Hey, y'all, this is episode 125, where we will be talking about the sovereignty of God. If you're blessed by this episode, please consider leaving a rating and review on my Apple podcast channel, Reclaiming the Faith. Also, go check out my new book called Faithful Witness, the Early Church's Theology of Martyrdom, and you can find it in audio, paperback, and digital options on Amazon. So go check that out. There's a link to it in the show notes. Also, if you want to consider supporting me and what I do, you can become one of my patrons. Go check out patreon.com slash philsbaker, where for $5 or more a month, you'll get access to all of my previous videos that I've done on early church fathers and early church documents and tutorials on how to play many of my original songs. Finally, I'm blessed to be a part of Omega Frequency with BDK, and you can find all of our content at our YouTube channel, Omega Frequency Live, so go subscribe to that. All right, well, without any further ado, let's get into episode 125. So over the last three years or so, a church where I used to work has undergone an almost total dismantling. And that is not something that brings me joy. It's something that uh, is quite sad. And for a Christian, it's something that should make us think about the way we think about our doctrine of the sovereignty of God particularly as it relates to God's people, God's church. Well, if we want to know God's plan, God's will for his church, we can look at many verses. I just want to highlight three of them for you from the New Testament. The first being in Ephesians chapter 3, starting in verse 8, Paul writes, To me, the very least of all saints— This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things, so that the manifold wisdom of God might be now made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places." Here's Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 11. Paul writes again, And he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Here's Paul again in 1 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 14. 
I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long, but in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth." So God's plan for his church, and this is not exhaustive, but in the passages that I've just read is that God's church would be a pillar of truth in the world, that God's church, God's people through the work of the apostles and prophets and evangelists, pastors and teachers, that the church would be equipped for the work of service, that the church would attain unity of the faith, that the church would become mature. God's plan for the church is that through the church, the wisdom of God would be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. And to be fair, in some places in the world, the church appears to be fulfilling God's purpose. But in others, it has fallen far short of its calling and purpose. So how does that square with the doctrine of God's sovereignty? Well, first, let's look at the doctrine of God's sovereignty from a Calvinistic perspective. Christian scholar E.H. Palmer writes in his book, The Five Points of Calvinism, quote, Nothing in this world happens by chance. God is in back of everything. He decides and causes all things to happen that do happen. He is not sitting on the sidelines wondering and perhaps fearing what is going to happen next. No, he has foreordained everything after the counsel of his will, the moving of a finger, the beating of a heart, the laughter of a girl, the mistake of a typist, even sin. So according to Palmer, the pastor who falls into sin And the dismantling of churches happens after the counsel of his will. Now, that seems kind of strange after we just read from God's word what God's will is for his church. But Palmer believes he is upholding the Orthodox Christian position, or at least the Orthodox Calvinistic perspective and position. And in that respect... He's right. Let's hear from Calvin himself, numerous excerpts from his work, Institutes of the Christian Religion, about God's sovereignty. So let's begin with uh, Institutes, Book 1, Chapter 16, Paragraph 8. Calvin writes, We hold that God is the disposer and ruler of all things, that from the remotest eternity, According to his own wisdom, he decreed what was to do, and now by his power executes what he decreed. Hence, we maintain that by his providence, not heaven and earth and inanimate creatures only, but also the counsels and wills of men are so governed as to move exactly in the course which he has destined. Here's Calvin again from... Institutes, Book 1, Chapter 16, Paragraph 3. 
quote, creatures are so governed by the secret counsel of God that nothing happens but what he has knowingly and willingly decreed. Here's Calvin Institute's book three, chapter 23, paragraph six, quote, but since he foresees events only by reason of the fact that he decreed that they take place, they vainly raise a quarrel over foreknowledge when it is clear that all things take place rather by his determination and bidding. So there, uh, Calvin is saying that the only reason God has foreknowledge of anything is because he has determined everything before the, the foundation of the world. Here again is uh, Calvin from book three, chapter 23, paragraph six, another place in the same paragraph. Quote, it is vain to debate about prescience, which is foreknowledge, which it is clear that all events take place by his sovereign appointment. Here is Calvin from uh, Institutes, book three, chapter 23, paragraph seven. Quote, again, I ask, whence does it happen that Adam's fall irremediably involved so many peoples together with their infant offspring in eternal death, unless because it so pleased God? The decree is dreadful indeed, I confess. Yet no one can deny that God foreknew what end man was to have before he created him, and consequently foreknew because he so ordained by his decree. And it ought not to seem absurd for me to say that God not only foresaw the fall of the first man and in him the ruin of his descendants, but also meted it out in accordance with his own decision. Now, here's one from the eternal predestination of God. Calvin writes, quote, how foolish and frail is the support of divine justice afforded by the suggestion that evils come to be not by his will, but by his permission. It is a quite frivolous refuge to say that God odiously permits them when scripture shows him not only willing, but the author of them. Who does not tremble at these judgments with which God works in the hearts of even the wicked, whatever he will, rewarding them nonetheless according to desert? Again, it is quite clear from the evidence of Scripture that God works in the hearts of men to incline their wills just as he will, whether to good for his mercy's sake or to evil according to their merits, unquote. So it seems pretty clear from Calvin that everything, literally everything, just as Palmer wrote, Everything that happens, happens because God decreed it was happen, and this is his will, and his will is pleasing to him. All evil, everything that happens, everything happens because God determined that it would happen. The corruption of pastors, the dismantling of churches, Utter chaos and apostasy in the church all have been predetermined 
by God before the foundation of the world and have come into being because it brings him glory and God's glory brings him joy. Now, let's read some verses from our Bibles about God's sovereignty and we can see what the Bible has to say about this. Psalm 24 verse 1 says, The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. So here it seems to be saying, the earth belongs to the Lord and everything in it because he founded it. He created it. So it all belongs to him. Psalm 103 verse 19 says, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his sovereignty rules over all. Bless the Lord, you his angels, mighty in strength, who perform his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all you hosts, you who serve him, doing his will. Bless the Lord, all you works of his, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul." So it seems here that the Lord is the ultimate ruler. He is the king of kings. He is over all beings, including the angels who are supposed to be performing his word and obeying his voice. Does that include the devil and the apostate angels? Are they obeying his word and performing his word? Or is that what they're supposed to do? Hmm. Let's go on to Acts chapter 4. This is in verse 23, where Luke is describing how uh, Peter and John uh, respond to being persecuted for preaching the gospel. So again, verse 23, quote, When they had been released, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they lifted their voice to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people devise futile things? The kings of this earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly in this city, they're gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do whatever. Ever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. So it seems like, it seems pretty clear, Luke is saying that the crucifixion of Jesus was very much purposed and predestined by God, that God was making sure that these events happened. Now, does that mean that he makes sure that all events happen? that he is causing all things to happen? Or is the text here saying that God made sure that the crucifixion of his son happened? Here's Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 9. He made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, 
things in the heavens and things on the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. Now, is this passage saying all things work according to God's will? Or is this saying that for Christians, all things will work together for our good, kind of like what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, that God will cause all things to end up working for his purpose and for our good. Let's look at Colossians 1, starting in verse 16. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Here's 1 Timothy chapter 6, starting in verse 13. Paul writes, again, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and to Christ Jesus, who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the proper time, who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. So Paul is clearly saying here that God is going to make sure that Jesus will return and bring about his will in God's time, at the proper time. And Paul is clearly saying here that though there are many sovereigns, God is the sovereign of sovereigns. God is the king of all kings and Lord of all lords. Here's Revelation chapter 17, starting in verse 12. The apostle John writes, the 10 horns which you saw are 10 kings who have not yet received a kingdom but they receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. These have one purpose, and they give their power and authority to the beast. These will wage war against the lamb, and the lamb will overcome them because he is Lord of lords and king of kings, and those who are with him are the called, the chosen, and the faithful." So clearly the Bible teaches that God is the ultimate ruler of the earth and he can do whatever he wants, even personally intervening in our affairs. Yet, even though he is the king of kings and lord of lords, is his will always being done on the earth like John Calvin teaches? Well, in Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 9, Jesus teaches us the Lord's Prayer. He says to his disciples, pray then in this way, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
why is Jesus telling us to pray that God's will would be done on earth the way it's being done in heaven if it's always being done on earth? Psalm 115, if you remember from Calvin, he said that Adam fell and sinned because that is what God determined he would do before the foundation of the world. That is what God willed to happen. Well, let's look at Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you will surely die. What was God's will here? It seems like it was God's will that Adam would not eat from the tree, but Calvin said it was God's will that he would. Let's go on to Genesis chapter 6. Starting in verse 1, Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land that daughters were born to them. And the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be one hundred and twenty years." The Nephilim who were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them, those were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of men was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. Now, if you take Calvin's approach towards scripture into light here, as we read Genesis 6, It would seem weird that these angels are always obeying God, yet these angels are taking wives for themselves and disobeying God, creating these monstrosities called the Nephilim. Were they obeying God, these angels that left their proper domain as Jude and 2 Peter described? Were they obeying God? Were they obeying God's will? Or were they disobeying God? Then we think about uh, the Lord seeing that every intent of the heart of man was evil only continually, and he was sorry that he made man. Hmm. But everything that's happening, even sin, according to John Calvin, is happening because God determined that it would happen So why is God grieved that his will is being done on earth? Another strange part of that passage is the Lord saying in verse 3, My spirit shall not strive with man forever. Who can strive with God? If God's will is always being done, everything, everything that's happening is because God 
determined before the foundation of the world that it would happen, who can strive with God? Who can fight with God? There are several passages in the book of Jeremiah that are very strange if you hold a completely Calvinistic view of God's sovereignty and if you hold an like an extreme Arminian perspective of man's free will because it shows God doing things that no man can stop. And then it also shows humans doing things that God absolutely claims no credit for. He puts squarely on the shoulders of the will of men. So check this out. This is Jeremiah 32, starting in verse 26. The context of this passage is that the Babylonians have surrounded Jerusalem. They're waging war against it. And God is telling Jeremiah over and over, like, as bad as things are, they're going to get worse. So here we go. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too difficult for me? Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I am about to give this city into the hand of the Chaldeans and into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he will take it. The Chaldeans who are fighting against this city will enter and set this city on fire and burn it with the houses where people have offered incense to Baal on their roofs and poured out drink offerings to other gods to provoke me to anger. Indeed, the sons of Israel and the sons of Judah have been doing only evil in my sight from their youth, for the sons of Israel have been only provoking me to anger by the works of their hands, declares the Lord." Indeed, this city has been to me a provocation of my anger and my wrath from the day that they built it, even to this day, so that it should be removed from before my face because of all the evil the sons of Israel and the sons of Judah, which they have done to provoke me to anger, they, their kings, their leaders, their priests, their prophets, the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. They have turned their back to me and not their face, though I taught them, teaching again and again, they would not listen and receive instruction. But they put their detestable things in the house, which is called by my name to defile it. They built the high places of Baal that are in the valley of Ben-Hinnom to cause their sons and their daughters to pass through the fire to Molech, things which I had not commanded them, nor had it entered my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin, unquote. Now, remember what John Calvin said earlier uh, from Institutes, Book 3, Chapter 23, Paragraph 7, quote, Again, I ask, whence does it happen that Adam's fall irremediably involved so many peoples together with their infant, infant offspring in eternal death unless because it so pleased God? The decree is dreadful indeed, I confess, yet no one 
can deny that God foreknew what end man was going to have before he created him and consequently foreknew because he's so ordained by his decree. And it ought not to seem absurd for me to say that God not only foresaw the fall of the first man and in him the ruin of his descendants, but also meted it out in accordance with his own decision." I want you to think about what Calvin is saying here. Calvin is saying that it pleased God to determine the eternal suffering and death of Adam's offspring. And God only foreknew that all of those things would happen because he determined it first. Now, how would that relate to the destruction of these infants in Jeremiah being burned to Molech? Well, some would say, that, no, that doesn't please God. Infants being burned alive does not please God. Uh, but the fire of an infant being burned alive to Molech only lasts a short time, while the fire that Calvin is talking about is eternal. So it pleases God to burn infants eternally, eternally, but it doesn't please God to have infant, infants burn for a few seconds or minutes. Now, remember from Genesis 6 how Moses wrote that God was grieved by all of the sin and destruction going on in the world. Well, according to Calvin, Everything happens because God willed and decreed for it to happen, and thus God's will being done pleases God. So how can he be pleased and grieved at his will being done? How can God being grieved be a genuine emotion if this is what he wants to do? You know, I think about myself as a child playing in my room, and I had a bunch of Star Wars little figurines and G.I. Joe action figures and all that stuff and, and Legos. And I would build these, these big uh, battle scenarios with the, the G.I. Joes fighting the Star Wars figures. And some of them would live, some of them would die. And since I was controlling it all, everything pleased me because everything that was being done was being done according to according to my will. So I could act like I was grieved at the death of Han Solo or Chewbacca or something like that. But really, it's not actually being, it's not actually grieving me because everything that's happening is happening according to my will. I'm controlling everything. And I know all analogies fall short at some point, but it seems kind of similar to what Calvin is describing as his view on sovereignty. But what was the early Christian position? So let's start with Justin Martyr in his second apology. This is around the year 160. He writes, quote, The Stoics, not observing this, maintain that all things take place according to the necessity of fate. But since God in the beginning made the race of angels and men with free will, they will justly suffer in eternal fire the punishment of whatever sins they have committed. And this is the nature of all that is made, to be capable of vice and virtue. For neither would any of them be praiseworthy unless there were power to turn both virtue and vice. 
And this also is shown by those men everywhere who have made laws and philosophized according to right reason by their prescribing to do some things and refrain from others. Here's Tertullian. He writes, some things seem to indicate the will of God, seeing that they are allowed by him. However, it does not necessarily follow that everything that is permitted proceeds out of the unqualified and absolute will of him who permits it. Here's Hippolytus in the refutation against all heresies. He writes, the Stoics, both Chrysippus and Zeno, supposed God to be the one originating principle of all things, being a body of the utmost refinement, and that his providential care pervaded everything, and these speculators were positive about the existence of fate everywhere, employing some such examples as the following, that just as a dog, supposing him attached to a car— if indeed he is disposed to follow, both is drawn or follows voluntarily, making an exercise also a free power in combination with necessity, that is, fate. But if he may not be disposed to follow, he will altogether be coerced to do so. And the same, of course, holds good in the case of men. For though not willing to follow, they will altogether be compelled to enter upon what has been decreed for them. So there, Hippolytus is saying, according to the beliefs of the Stoics, which Hippolytus calls a heresy, you're going to do what you have been fated and determined to do, whether you like it or not. Here's Cyprian around 250 commenting on the Lord's Prayer. He writes, We add also and say, Thy will be done as in heaven, so in earth. Not that God should do what he wills, but that we may be able to do what God wills. For who resists God that he may not do what he wills? But since we are hindered by the devil from obeying with our thought and deed God's will in all things, we pray and ask that God's will may be done in us and that it may be done in us. We have need of God's good will, that is, of his help and protection, since no one is strong in his own strength, but he is safe by the grace and mercy of God." John also exhorts and instructs us to do the will of God, saying, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world is the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the ambition of life, which is not of the Father, but of the lust of the world. And the world shall pass away in the lust thereof, but he that does the will of God abides forever, even as God also abides forever. We who desire to abide forever should do the will of God who is everlasting. Unquote. All right. Well, as I'm coming toward the end of this episode, I wanted to discuss two parables uh, from the book of Matthew, one from Matthew chapter 20 and another from Matthew chapter 22. Both of these parables are about the kingdom of heaven. So naturally, you're going to have one of these figures 
in here who is representing God. In chapter 20, the parable is about a landowner, and in chapter 22, it's about a king. Either way, they are both representing God. That's that's pretty obvious. So you can get an idea about what it looks like for God's rule in the world, what Jesus is saying about God's sovereignty. All right, so Matthew chapter 20, verse 1, Jesus says, quote, The kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. When he had agreed with the laborers for denarius for the day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to to them, you also go into the vineyard and whatever is right, I will give you. And so they went out. Again, he went out about the sixth and ninth hour and did the same thing. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing around. And he said to them, Why have you been standing here idle all day long? And they said to him, Because no one hired us. And he said to them, You go into the vineyard too. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last group to the first. When those hired about the eleventh hour came, each one received a denarius. When those hired first came, they thought that they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they grumbled at the landowner, saying, These last men have worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden with the scorching heat of the day. But he answered and said to them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go. But I wish to give this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own? Or is your eye envious because I am generous? So the last shall be first and the first last. There are many truths we could take from this parable, but a few would be that God owns the vineyard. This is God's. We can't come and work for him unless we're allowed to. He's got to graciously initiate that for us. But he gets to decide what he does with his money, right? It's God's. He gets to decide that. He makes the rules. He determines the rewards. He determines the punishments, that kind of thing. God is sovereign over this. Okay, So let's go to Matthew chapter 22, starting in verse 1. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast, and they were unwilling to come. Again, he sent out other slaves, saying, Tell those who have been invited Behold, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fattened livestock are all butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went their own way, one to his own farm, another to his business, and the rest seized his slaves and mistreated and killed them. Let's pause here. All right, so God is clearly the king. God is sending out his servants to invite people to the feast. Uh, 
God is the one providing everything at the wedding feast, uh, and no one can come to the wedding unless they're invited. And yet, though God implores them multiple times to come, many resist, and worse more, some of them kill several of the servants of the king. So what happens? Well, verse 7 says, The king was enraged, and he sent out his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. So here we go. Uh, God genuinely invited them to come. They resisted, and so God justly, as the king, determines the consequences and the consequence of resisting him and refusing to celebrate his son is condemnation. And the king is well within his rights as the king to operate in that way. Let's continue. Verse eight, then he said to his slaves, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main highways, as many as you find there, and invite them to the wedding feast. Those slaves went out into the streets and gathered all they found, both good and evil, and the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. So just pause there again. So why were these original people not worthy? They weren't worthy because they didn't value the wedding of the son. They didn't value the grace of the king. Even though they were invited, they resisted the king's grace, abused his servants, and were justly recompensed for their actions. Now, again, those who come to the wedding hall, uh, these dinner guests could only come because they were first invited. The king had to initiate their invitation to the wedding hall, but these came, both good and bad. These do not deserve the wedding invitation. They are graciously invited and they chose to come. Let's continue. Verse 11. But when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth for many are called, but few are chosen. So notice that just because you were called does not mean that you get chosen. In order to be a fully participating member of the wedding feast, you have to be invited by God, but you have to also, by the king, but you also have to have the proper wedding uh, attire. Now, Irenaeus comments on this passage in his Against Heresies, Volume 4, and he compares the wedding clothes to uh, what Revelation 19 describes as the wedding clothes of the bride of Christ, which is the righteous acts of the saints. And you can think about this kind of similarly to Matthew 25, sheep and goats parable of clothing the the naked, feeding the hungry, giving water to the thirsty, visiting people that are sick or in prison. These types of acts of righteousness or justice, uh, these acts of mercy. So you can't uh, end up with Jesus unless you first are uh, 
graciously invited by the king, valuing and receiving his son, and uh, also following him uh, in your actions, in a sense. So you, you can't have someone saved without the grace of the Father, but you also have to, if you're truly saved, you must have accompanying good works. You can't have one without the other. And you have to have both in order to be chosen, you could say. All right, well, let me just wrap this up with a a short quote from my book, New Wineskins and the Simple Words of Christ, and then just give a brief comment about the analogy we started with or the situation we started this podcast with. So here we go. Quote, God is absolutely sovereign and the ultimate ruler of all. He created all things and reigns over all things. Nothing happens that he is not aware of, that he does not allow, or that he will not use to ultimately accomplish his good, pleasing, and perfect will. God is not a wicked slave master who toys with his slaves by offering them liberation while knowing they are incapable of of achieving it. God does not delight in punishing them when they fail with extreme tortures that would put our world's cruelest sadists to shame. God is love, and love can only thrive where there is the opportunity for it to either be chosen or rejected. Love requires free will." Our God is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the ultimate sovereign because he created all things and all things exist by him, through him, and for him. And so if he wants to insert himself into our story, he can. He makes the rules. He determines the rewards. He determines the the punishments. And though it is not his desire for the church, if he wants to remove a church's lampstand, he absolutely has the right. Now with that, people can do a lot of things that grieve God. It grieves God's heart when leaders fail. It grieves God's heart when his church does not operate in a manner that is pleasing to him or that is loving towards the people that are created in his image that he desires to save. God does not desire that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. And prayer really matters. In these terribly sad and frustrating situations, we need to pray as the Lord taught us, that God's kingdom would come and God's will would be done in those situations the way God's will is done in heaven. God bless you. I kept my head low and I walked that narrow road mighty men roamed who devoured both house and home but I won't forget that day you made yourself known you said the end has come for men but hang tight to me with your family